When I retired, with lots of newfound available time, I enjoyed many travel opportunities. This podcast may encourage you to visit, revisit, or experience virtual armchair travel, learning about exciting new venues. Travel is an excellent vehicle for lifelong learning. Welcome to the What Travel Writers Say podcast. I'm Mike Keenan, your host, and today we examine Israel. When I told my friends that I was invited on a press trip to Israel, many expressed caution. Middle East is a constant source of conflict, and after the latest of many hostilities between Palestinian and Jew, several well-known entertainers such as Neil Young, America, and the Backstreet Boys canceled shows. In reality, I relish Israel, particularly Jerusalem, the celebrated epicenter of three major monotheistic religions, and where the Bible literally replaces commercial guidebooks. I have never felt more secure than on a previous trip with groups of well-equipped young soldiers seemingly located in every tourist area. Israel's El Al Airlines employs rigorous security measures, making it the safest airline in the world. With state-of-the-art defense systems in place, no plane has been hijacked or shot down, and many aircraft are equipped with anti-missile technology. Ironically, getting out of Israel was actually harder than getting in for me. At Ben-Gurion International Airport in Tel Aviv, all vehicles encounter a preliminary security check an armed guard, before entering the airport compound. Armed security personnel are stationed at the terminal entrances. They keep a close watch on all who enter, and plainclothes armed personnel patrol the area with hidden surveillance cameras operating continuously. The screening area inside is surrounded by blast-proof glass that can handle a detonation of up to 100 kilos of plastic explosives. Accordingly, in an emergency, only a few dozen people need to be removed to a safer point a few meters away. If a screener spots a suspect bag, he or she is trained to place it in a blast-proof box. The bomb squad then wheels away the box for further investigation. On either end, you must arrive at the terminal three hours before your flight. The detailed security procedures can be time-consuming. Departing passengers are questioned by security agents even before arriving at the actual check-in desk. This interview may last as little as a minute or as long as an hour if a passenger is selected for additional screening. Luggage and body searches may be conducted. After the search, your bags are screened by an x-ray machine before you proceed to the check-in counter. On the return, my bag was open because I had packed a hardcover book and the x-ray machine didn't like its shape. There was no removal of shoes or belts, but you had best not appear anxious when interviewed. At Toronto's Pearson International Airport, just outside the El Al Israeli check-in area, two hefty policemen equipped with equally bulky guns stand at the ready. I check in with a lady clerk who passes me off to Levy, 
a tall man who introduces himself as head of security. I am impressed by my apparent VIP status, but wonder if it's in a negative context. He photocopies my passport. I show him my itinerary from Israel's Ministry of Tourism. Levy's main concern is, who packed my bags? Were they ever out of my sight? And is there anything inside, such as a gift that resembles a weapon? At this check-in area, I'm provided with a bag of gifts from Israel's Toronto Tourism Office. I recycle a toy plane and a teddy bear, causing an appreciative passing child to exhibit a huge smile. Just wait until you go through security, I think to myself. Later on, at the actual boarding area, we pass through the same security personnel who check passports a second time. They ask me for a second proof of who I am and seem somewhat concerned. They ask if I have dual citizenship and another passport. Later, I discover that my passport picture was relatively dark. I notice that even the duty-free materials are x-rayed before allowed on board. Unlike previous trips in both New York City and Tel Aviv, here in Toronto they do not x-ray my carry-on bag. Finally, I board the plane. It's a long flight at 10.5 hours, flown by a retiring El Al pilot. His last flight with his wife for company, and a silly paranoia sets in after the PA announcement. I worry that he might want to go out with a bang. At 4 a.m., plus seven hours difference from Toronto, we arrive at Ben-Gurion International Airport, named after the primary founder and the first prime minister of Israel. I am whisked through customs by a young lad named Gar, who is studying law. Davy, my driver, takes me to Jerusalem, and we enjoy a spirited conversation along the way. As a courtesy, he drives by the residence of Benjamin Netanyahu, head of the Likud party, and Israel's current prime minister. I soon arrive at the Inbal Hotel. Wow! It's lavish, snazzy, and in a perfect location near the old town. I have several hours before my companions arrive. Two New York writers and the front desk clerk suggest a walk to the nearby train depot. It has been converted to eateries, shops, and an entertainment venue, which I do explore and then head northwest to discover an attractive park donated by two Montrealers, the Bloomfields. This lush park is a great place to view the eastern wall of the old city, stretching parallel to its long border. You can saunter in elegant surroundings with sculptures gracing the way, undisturbed by crowds. A very peaceful setting. I walk close to three hours, then back to Inbal to wait for my travel companions. Patricia Schultz of 1,000 Places to See Before You Die fame, and Greg Salisbury, editor of two Philadelphia travel magazines. On our first evening in Jerusalem, we dine at Joy Meat Inn, a restaurant in Mamilla, a neighborhood just outside the old city and west of the Jaffa Gate. Between 1948 to 67, Mamilla was situated along the armistice line between the Israeli and Jordanian-held sectors. Many buildings were destroyed by Jordanian shelling. Designed by Canadian architect Moshe Safdi, the Mamilla Mall opened in 2007. Safdi is identified most with Habitat, a pavilion designed for Expo 67, 
the World's Fair in Montreal, Quebec, which paved the way for his international career. The restaurant is intimate and inviting. We start with typical Middle Eastern tapas, fantastic bread, red beets, lentils, various types of hummus, baba kanoush, roasted eggplant and garlic dip, eggplant yogurt dip, goat cheese, and fire-roasted pepper dip, aiman bayadi, Middle Eastern ratatouille, olive tapenade, and roasted peppers and eggplant. Wow, a meal in itself. But fresh salmon with savory red wine are aided to a wonderful dining experience. The next day is busy and blistering hot. We start at the city of David, the original metropolis of Jerusalem, founded 3,000 years ago. At Jerusalem's latest archaeological cause celeb, my female guide, Nufit, claims that one does not require Lonely Planet, Michelin, or similar guidebooks. She pulls out a Bible, which she says makes history real. All around, I watch clubs of pilgrims led by religious and secular guides, their large buses parked wherever there is space. Jerusalem is the quintessential act of faith. Disneyland for the soul. Wily Romans, fearing the politics of monotheism, were slow to adapt it under Constantine to suit their affairs of state. When the Jews rebelled in 68 BCE, the Romans destroyed the Second Temple, ironically restored 2,000 years previously by Herod after the original temple, built by Solomon, was shattered by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BCE. Long before the temple, Abraham stood on this mount to sacrifice his son Isaac, and Jacob slept here dreaming of a ladder to heaven. We tour the Davidson Educational Center and the Southern Wall excavations. The Western Wall is a 57-meter or 187-foot exposed section of an ancient wall on the flank of the Temple Mount, the holiest site in Judaism. It faces a large plaza set aside for prayer. The wall is a retaining wall built to support the extensive renovations that Herod the Great employed in 19 BCE. We witnessed joyous celebrations, heralded by merry music streaming from clarinets, the horn of a ram, drums, and even a saxophone, along with parades to honor bar mitzvahs. Bar mitzvah for boys and bat mitzvah for girls are Jewish coming-of-age rituals. According to Jewish law, when children turn 13, they are accountable for their actions. It's wonderful to see the beaming pride etched on the faces of parents, and some have traveled all the way from the United States to celebrate this memorable family ritual. Unlike any other city, Three world monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are packed tightly together inside the old city's 0.9 square kilometer walled area. There are four congested, complicated ecclesiastical quarters. Armenian, historically first to administer Christian interests, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish. The Western Wall is where Barack Obama and millions of others wedge prayer notes inside ancient stones. Add to the overlapping mix of interests the Stations of the Cross or the Via Dolorosa, assorted seminaries, convents, and chapels, and you have a robust recipe to keep a pilgrim busy for an entire month. 
Turf wars erupted from the beginning as successive Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Byzantine, Roman, Muslim, Crusader, Mameluk, Ottoman, and British interests struggled for control of this prized city. When the UN declared Israel a state in 1948, it was immediately attacked by Arabs, and Jordan controlled the entire old city, destroying all but one synagogue and not allowing Jewish access until 1967's decisive war. At the western wall to the old city, I witnessed a joyous celebration of Jerusalem Day, a national holiday commemorating the reunification of Jerusalem and establishment of Israeli control over the old city during June's 1967 war. Youth gather in a large circle, dancing and singing the national anthem while waving Israeli flags with their distinctive Star of David. For my guide, Nathan Shapiro, attending the Western Wall with tourists is bittersweet. The next paratrooper in the Six Days War, with sadness welling in his eyes, he never fails to see images of fallen comrades at the wall. He himself was shot in the chin by an Egyptian sniper, but remarkably survived with a slight scar. Military service is mandatory at 18. Men serve three years, women 22 months. When they enter school afterwards, Nathan claims that they make serious students. We learn that Israel is a high-tech leader with centers throughout the country. It is surrounded by Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. Existing peace treaties with Jordan and Egypt create worry now that Arab upheavals seem geared to radical change. The young soldiers readily oblige my request to take their pictures. They smile and carry their rifles easily the way Canadian youth carry hockey sticks. We climb through a narrow tunnel excavated beneath the entire length of the revered western wall, passing through medieval structures to arrive opposite the foundation stone and the Holy of Holies, where I observe a woman transfixed in prayer. Add to the mix of religion and, and antiquity the coalition parliament, or Knesset, which contains 26 vying political parties, and progress remains a difficult byproduct. After the Western Wall tunnels, we emerge into the Via Dolorosa. I sit inside the ornately decorated Austrian hospice. The music director of the Israeli opera, Dan Edinger, introduces a group of singers and musicians who perform arias and duets from three Cleopatra operas. No sooner do they begin when a loud recording interrupts from a nearby minaret stationed outside. It announces Adhan, call to prayer, summoning Muslim mandatory prayers five times a day. We wait seven minutes for our music to restart. Such is Jerusalem. The Austrian hospice is adjacent to the third station of the cross, and we saunter through myriad bazaars to the Damascus Gate and visit the garden tomb. Towards the end of the day, we examine the museum on the seam, a radical socio-political contemporary art museum, the first of its kind in Israel, depicting human rights abuse. It is hazardly situated on a Jewish-Palestinian divide. I notice bullet holes in its facade. In the morning, we visit Yad Vashem, Israel's incredible memorial to the Holocaust. 
It is so powerful an experience that once through it, I must pause to gather myself. We continued to the L.A. Mayer Museum of Islamic Art, discover the Germany colony, Jerusalem's trendy Soho district, and then view a panorama of the city from the promenade of the Hill of Evil Council. Dinner is in the Arab village of Abu Ghash. Security is a constant issue. I travel along modern highways with adjacent concrete walls and barbed wire lining both sides to protect against terror. However, at Tel Aviv's Ben-Gurion Airport and inside Jerusalem, I have never felt safer. I amble through the Jewish market, a multi-sensory exploration featuring crowded stalls that sell every conceivable Mediterranean product from fig olive and spice to sandals, clothes, and DVDs. Depending on your version of Islam, Sunni, Shia, or Sufi, there are holier sites in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and elsewhere, but the Judeo-Christian sites here attract relentless mobs, steady streams of tourists and pilgrims. One learns to be patient. I walk through the small garden of Gethsemane, with twisted ancient tree trunks mirroring Christ's agony, and I attend a communion service in the adjacent Church of All Nations. In the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, prostrated pilgrims kiss the slab where Christ's dead body was washed and prepared for burial. At the Mount of Olives, I observe a Jewish cemetery crammed with 150,000 graves that line the hills. In the distance is the road where Jesus entered the city on Palm Sunday. Before the trip, I attended a superb performance of Jesus Christ Superstar at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. Here, the actors are real. Herod, Pontius Pilate, Christ, and his apostles. The church sits where Peter denied Christ three times, as well as Mary Magdalene, honored by the Russian Orthodox Church, and countless others. For instant cultural and historical enrichment, Jerusalem is the city to visit, and one must bring a Bible. Nathan tells me it's hard to get anything done in Jerusalem. Every time one digs up a road or makes a repair, archaeologists are summoned to a new discovery. We witness an ancient main road excavated in the last year amidst a children's playground. Remarkably elaborate, it dates from Herod's time complete with pillars and ceramic decoration. Next day, we arrive at the lowest point on earth, the Dead Sea. We visit Khazar al-Yahud, where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and later we tour Masada. There in the evening, a well-dressed middle-aged man sits in front of me, one arm draped firmly around an attractively jeweled lady, clearly half his age. He and his jet-set friends have purportedly paid 2,200 shekels, or $640 U.S. per seat. I sit alone but free, courtesy of Israeli tourism. But what a seat it is. I'm at the base of Masada, the UNESCO World Heritage Site, where the Israeli Opera Company is producing Giuseppe Verdi's famous Aida, the Italian maestro's ultimate masterpiece among his 28 operas. In 2010, their 25th anniversary, the Israeli opera inaugurated this festival, 
and it has securely placed Israel on the map of world opera festivals, alongside the likes of Italy, France, Switzerland, and Finland. The scope of tonight's Aida is stunning. I have never encountered a stage so large housing such colossal scenery, large temples, four sphinxes, two on each side, competing armies, Egyptian and Ethiopian, high priests, prisoners, spectacular lighting effects, and massive Mount Masada serving as a majestic natural backdrop to this show, which also features international soloists, Darren Oren, renowned Israeli conductor, Israeli opera chorus and orchestra, as well as some 50 dancers and even a few camels thrown in. Yes, camels, but when they appear, William Littler, a North American music critic beside me, boasts in Toronto we had elephants. Nevertheless, here I sit under starry heavens amidst the Judean desert's warm landscape overlooking the Dead Sea, distinctively the lowest place on earth that has spawned a multitude of tourist hotels, spas, and expensive health and cosmetic products. Coincidentally, the Dead Sea was one of the finalists in the new Seven Wonders of Nature online campaign. Apparently, opera draws well-heeled tourists, and the Ministry of Tourism highly regards exceptional experiences such as this. 4,000 music fan visitors from abroad last year indicates that the Israeli plan is working. The festival began here with Verdi's Nabucco. Next, it's Carmen. The desert venue is not without logistical problems. A gargantuan stage had to be carefully constructed. A huge fleet of buses, ferries, spectators, and I noticed several minutes of stiff sand gusts that sweep across the stage during an aria. For this Canadian drama writer, not really an opera fan to begin with, this is nonetheless an unforgettable experience. For those unable to visit Masada, which is 100 kilometers from Tel Aviv, the opera festival in Jerusalem has opened with 30 chamber concerts in churches and unique sites located throughout Jerusalem, as well as an appropriate opera called Jerusalem. I attended a performance by the wonderful Italian Arena de Verona Orchestra in the Sultan's Pool across from the walls of the old city, as well as two other musical events, one in the Citadel's Tower of David Museum and the other mentioned already in the Austrian hospice in the old city's Muslim quarter. The Sultan's Pool, once a dam source of water for the city to host summertime concerts and festivals. When I attended, the evening's music featured Rossini, Verdi, and Puccini, and it was accessible as I heard those pieces many times before. Listening while viewing the lit surrounding walls of the ancient city was a great treat. In the desert, prior to Aida, I explored Masada National Park, Israel's first World Heritage Site. At the visitor center, I learned the history and then ascended in a cable car to roam up top around the site. I also viewed the new Yigal Yadin Masada Museum with its hundreds of archaeological finds. Masada was rated the best tourist site in the world in its class by readers of Condé Nast Traveler. People have streamed here since the archaeologist Yadin revealed its story in the 1960s. Masada is on the itinerary of virtually every tour group from abroad 
It continues to be a prime destination for Israeli youth groups and school groups and for Israeli army units, some of which take their oaths of allegiance in ceremonies atop Masada. As I tour, I'm amazed at King Herod's excess. His three lofty palaces, stone terraces that hang over the abyss, and his huge sunken bath houses constructed 400 meters above the Dead Sea. These rugged slopes, steep cliffs, and desert surroundings provide perfect natural defenses that first attracted Herod, but ultimately he abandoned Masada. Rebels from Jerusalem sought it out and took it over, leaving behind their simple possessions. The great chambers of Herod's palaces became command posts and public buildings. A building next to the northern wall, a stable in Herod's day, became a synagogue one of the earliest synagogues ever discovered in use while the temple still stood. The remains of the Roman siege system can be seen around Masada's base, among the most complete remains of Roman siege works anywhere in the world. With the Jewish zealots holding out for three years, the Romans finally constructed a long, sloping path to climb to the top. The night before their defeat, Jewish leaders decided that they would rather commit suicide than succumb. I will always remember the remnant shards of clay that they used to draw lots to determine who would remain at the end to fall on his own sword after the other leaders had each perished, having sacrificed their own families. Standing at the top of the fortress gives me an eerie feeling. Masada epitomizes the unremitting struggle of Jewish people for freedom from oppression. And who could remain unmoved at the sight of the remnants attesting to their bitter end? Aida doesn't end much better. The Ethiopian slave and her secret lover, the Egyptian military leader, suffer similar fates as the Jewish rebels. Afterwards, we continue through the Negev Desert to the Ramon Crater in an exploration by jeep through jagged terrain and rocks of what is the world's largest geological crater. I jokingly ask our young driver how many flat tires per year. He proudly pats his Land Rover and replies, only two. But at the very end, the number jumps to three, and we are delayed 20 minutes. We dine and overnight at Mitzpi Ramon. Early in the morning, as we watch... A group of trim cyclists prepare for a desert race. We head to Kibbutz Sedbuker, where Israel's founding father, David Ben-Gurion, retired, and where he is buried. We tour his living quarters and view memorabilia. An insomniac and a voracious reader, innumerable books are scattered everywhere, and I spot a photo of his purported hero, Mahatma Gandhi. Outside, there is a statue of Ben-Gurion performing a headstand, a daily exercise. Next, we visit the Karmi Avat Winery, where grapes are grown on terraces built two millennia ago by Nabataeans, ancient traders. We drive on to Rehovot and visit the Bauhaus home of Chaim and Vera Wiseman. Wiseman was an architect of the Balfour Declaration, suggesting a national home for the Jews and the first president of Israel. Finally, we arrive at Herod's, our Tel Aviv hotel in Israel's largest metropolis. In the morning, we visit the bustling Carmel and Levinsky markets. 
then stroll through trendy Nevtizik to ancient Jaffa with its eclectic flea market. We amble through the Jaffa Kasbah with its art galleries and shiny boutiques. The afternoon is leisurely for last-minute shopping and exploration or simply a stroll on the beach promenade. After dinner, we transfer to Ben-Gurion International Airport for a late evening check-in and a post-midnight departure from Israel. Israel's Ministry of Tourism had prepared me with these facts. There are 10 non-stop flights a day from North America. With 8 million Israelis, even though Israel is the Jewish state, 25% of Israelis are Christian and Muslim. There are more cell phones, bookstores, laptops, and museums per capita here than in any country. Israel is considered Silicon Valley East, the world's second largest creator of software and systems. The Green Revolution began in Israel a century ago, as more trees per acre than in any other country have been planted here since 1900. Israelis have used solar power for heating water for 60 years, and water-saving drip irrigation was invented here. Cherry tomatoes, too. Almost everyone speaks good English. Israel is considered part of the Francophone world because of the large number of French-speaking immigrants from North Africa. Because the Dead Sea is the lowest point on Earth, the sun's rays have an additional 1,200 feet to travel before they reach human skin. So you tend to tan, not to burn. The bottom line is that with its ancient history and charm, I would willingly return here in a minute. The food is amazing and so are the people despite the political strife. If you would like to read my published travel articles about Israel, check out my website, whattravelwriterssay.com. And if you would like to view countless pictures taken during this journey, visit my Pinterest boards at pinterest.com backslash mustang6648 backslash. Once again, my website is located at whattravelwritersay.com and my photos are located at pinterest.com backslash mustang6648 backslash. We conclude each podcast with an appropriate travel quote. Today it's from writer Dave Barry, who lamented, flying from the U.S. to Tokyo takes approximately as long as law school. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, contact me at mjk6648 at gmail.com. That's mjk6648 at gmail.com. Happy travels and tune in next week for another What Travel Writers Say podcast.